hi. They wanted to be part of our service, even though they're not, not here with us. So that's awesome. Everybody yell, hey, guys. All right, one, two, three. Hey guys. There we go. That is awesome. Hey, guys. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we are continuing our service, service this, uh, our series. Just I'm doing a four-week series um, just as we come up to Easter on uh, Did Jesus Really? Last week, I introduced the series by just talking about we live in this world of, of fake news, of manipulated media, um, where, you know, the, the term I introduced last week is one I just learned over the last couple of weeks, this idea of reality apathy, this idea that we, we know that we're going to be deceived, we know we're going to be manipulated, we know we're going to be marketed to, we know that, that there's going to be fake news all around us trying to shift and inform our political positions and even our, our view of truth. And so that's what we're trying to do is actually try to parse through some of that and, and ask some of these questions about, okay, well, what is the bedrock of our faith? Did Jesus really do the things that we as Christians claim to believe that he, he literally physically did in history? And last week, um, we looked at the, the first question of, of, did Jesus really live? And, um, and today, we're looking at a, a, a different question. And I know we're looking at the question today of, uh, did Jesus really claim to be God? And, and so I don't know, e each one of you, you have different types of approaches to your faith, and I, I totally get that. Some of you guys are like, oh man, this series, it's going to bother you. You're going to be like, I, I don't really like thinking about my faith in that way. I just want to go back to last series, we, we talked about prayer. You know, we've been talking about prayer for the last two months, and so some of you guys are like, that's, that's how I approach God, that's, how, that's what I want, Right? And so this might be a challenge for you because in, in that last series, we're, we're trying to engage our heart and, and actually our knees. We're trying to engage our knees when we're talking about how to pray. And in this series, we're doing a little bit more engaging our, our mind. And so others of you are, are saying, yes, this is, this is what I, I need. I have friends at my workplace or friends in my school who are asking me these questions and are challenging me in these ways. And this is what, this is what, and so we, we, me as a, as pastor trying to figure out what we're preaching in series to series is trying to say, okay, you know, where are you guys at and what do we need? And so uh, if, if this is your, if this is your thing, if this is what you need at this moment, that's awesome. If, if it's not, well then bear with us, it's a four week series, right? Um, but so we're looking today at the question, did Jesus really claim to be God? And this question flows out of the question we looked at last week. The question we looked at last week was, did Jesus really exist? And if we answer that question in the affirmative, if we, if we, fight, if we fight and wade through history and we see that, yeah, there is historical sources and reasons why we would believe that Jesus actually existed, well, the next question is, well, who, who did Jesus claim to be? Because some people will grant that Jesus really lived, but then... Uh, we'll say, well, maybe he was just a, a good person. He was an itinerant teacher. He was maybe he was a wonder worker or somebody who, or somebody who, uh, who who riled up the crowds. But that it was only decades after his death that the myth of Jesus's deity grew. It sometimes even claimed. I read uh, an article this week that somebody claimed Jesus would roll over in his grave if. He knew that people were worshiping him as God, that it wasn't Jesus' intent to present himself as God. And so that's the question we're looking at today. Did Jesus himself really claim to be God? 
And this is important, as one New Testament and ancient Judaism scholar named Brent Petrie suggests, he writes, the answer to this question has enormous historical and theological implications. If Jesus did not think he was God, then one of the central claims of Christianity, indeed, arguably the central claim, that the one true God became man, became man in Jesus of Nazareth comes crashing to the ground. But if Jesus did act and speak as if he were the one true God, then we are forced to make a decision. Either he was a liar who knew he was just a man but spoke as if he were divine, or he was a lunatic who thought he was God but was grossly mistaken. Or he was who he claimed to be, the one true God come in person. And this question is a difficult one to answer because it can be approached from different angles depending on the conversation you're having. And the tricky part when you're in your workplaces or when you're in your classes or when you're in your neighborhood or when you're you know, getting together with family over Easter dinner, the tricky part is that when we're actually having real day-to-day you know, -day conversations with people, people understand this is a complex question and they, we jump back and forth between these different angles and sometimes these different angles can get confused. And so one of the things that I do when I'm talking with, you know, my friend who's not a Christian is I will try to determine what conversation are we having and then have that conversation and not jump from conversation to conversation. You ever do that where you're, you're talking with somebody about, you know, a, a deep or important issue and you find yourselves jumping from conversation to conversation and so you can never really get your handle on, on one of them? And so that's what happens with this question about did Jesus really claim to be God? There's at least three different angles that are generally taken. There's the uh, there's three ways the conversation go. So you might be in a conversation where you're approaching it through like at the angle of historicity. You know, can the New Testament, especially the Gospels, be taken as historical sources conveying accurate information regarding the life of Jesus? That's one conversation. Or you might have another conversation, which would be the textual conversation, the textual angle, meaning are, are the texts, the, the, the scriptures, the, the, the books that we hold in our hand when we hold up the Bible, are they actually the words that, that the gospel writers wrote? Or, or were, they, were they manipulated later by the church to manufacture Christ's deity? So it's a different question. It's a different conversation. Or uh, the one I'm going to look at most today is the interpretive angle. Uh, do the New Testament writings even demonstrate Jesus' claims to be divine? Is that the correct reading or the correct interpretation of the text? So there's these three different conversations that we could be having, and I'm going to go quickly through the first two conversations and then spend most of my time on the third conversation today. Okay? But, but just note, as you're, as you're having conversations with your coworkers and classmates, like that's one step. It's first for you as a Christian in your way of thinking and and. and, and and giving an answer for your faith is actually first is at least discerning what conversation the person is having. If the person's interested in having a, a question around the textual angle, like, I don't even know, this, this that you hold in your hand, this isn't what the, what the apostles actually wrote. Will you making, you, you then taking the interpretive approach or taking the historical approach doesn't really help things, all right? So that's why I'm giving this to you, to, to, to train and equip you to have those conversations. Um, but there's three ways the conversation go. The, the historical angle. Can the New Testament, especially the Gospels, be taken as historical sources conveying accurate information regarding the life of Jesus? Well, 
I'm not going to rehash a lot, but we went through a lot of this last week, that explaining that, the, yes, the New Testament letters and Gospels are committed to, to their presentation of the life and work of Jesus Christ. And in fact, last week we talked about their bias in their presentation. These are people who believe that Jesus was, who they said that, these are people who believe that Jesus was, in fact, God to be worshipped. And so because of that, they say, well, they had skin in the game. They had a bias. They had, they, they had that that they're holding on to, that they were committed to when they wrote their letters and their biographies. But I submitted to you last week that all history has a bias, and we don't throw out historical documents just because they convey a bias. Like the Roman historians had a bias about Caesar to be worshipped in the imperial cult. We don't throw out uh, the ancient Roman historians because of that. Or you, could, you might imagine somebody came up last week, and it actually was in my notes, somebody, one of you guys came up and talked about Abraham Lincoln last week. Well, you could imagine that somebody writing a biography of Abraham Lincoln who lived in the southern United States might write a, a very different type of biography than somebody who lived in the north, but that doesn't mean we throw them out as historical sources. In fact, we use them as historical sources, and we determine, you know, what of the life of... In fact, it's often helpful when we have multiple sources. And that's what we looked at last week. We looked at the multiple sources of the Gospels and the sources of Roman and Jewish historians to, de to, to, to demonstrate the, the why behind nearly why every, in fact, every scholar of the New Testament in the ancient world believes that Jesus was truly a historical person. And so we don't throw them out just simply because the writers were committed to the picture of Jesus they were presenting. We, we discern them. But I will offer one extra thought regarding the value of New Testament sources about this question of Jesus' claim to divinity that's important to keep in mind. And, and, and if you were in my Sunday school class today, we talked about it, was that each of these writers of, of the New Testament, they were Jewish. And what that means is from a young age, they had been trained in Jewish, the Jewish monotheism of the day. So that means from the time they were early on in their youth, their parents taught them to pray daily, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema. It's from uh, Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, and it's, it's the prayer that every Jewish child would have been taught to pray. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they were trained from the time they were little kids that any diversion of understanding that the Lord is God and he alone is God was idolatry and was blasphemy. And so there, there was, you know, the Jewish people, well, before the exile, before they were, well, they were in the land and before they were kicked out of the land, yes, they did in fact struggle with idolatry. And yes, they did in fact have the temptation to worship the gods of the people around them. But what God did when he, when he judged them in the Babylonian captivity, they were spat out of their homeland for 70 years. And after they returned, the one thing we see in Jewish history is they didn't struggle with idolatry of that sort anymore. They learned their lesson that the Lord their God, the Lord was one. And in fact, what you see in the, in the centuries leading up to Christ is a greater and greater hostility toward the gods of the Roman Empire as idolatrous. And they were, they were actually rebelling against the gods of the Roman Empire and against the Roman Empire because of the idolatry of the empire. They were trained from birth to understand that there is one God and he alone is God. And yet, these are the people 
that now are writing the New Testament saying, and Jesus. If there were any people unlikely to ascribe divinity to a human being, it would have been people like the people who wrote the New Testament. And so that's where I would submit to you about this historical conversation. That's part of this historical conversation to have. Is that, look, if, if in fact, when we get to the third conversation of interpretation, if in fact these gospel writers and these writers of the New Testament do claim that Jesus is God, that is highly significant given the historical context. That's what I'd say about the first conversation. The second conversation, the textual angle, do we have now what they wrote then? I'm not going to spend hardly any time on this today, but this question has been answered very definitively, yes. I, I actually am a geek, and I love the study of tech, what's called textual criticism. It's where scholars like go through every manuscript, every piece of papyri, every like old and brittle piece of, it's even pre-paper, right? And scrolls, they find these scrolls in jars and caves, and they catalog them, and they, they're very exact about it. And Christians are very honest to say, look, here it is. Here is everything we have found. Here is every manuscript we have found. You can go online right now, and they are literally taking highly, uh, what do you call, high-quality digital photographs of every single manuscript that's ever been found of the New Testament. And you can, if you knew Greek and you could read it, you can go and you can look and you can cross-reference them. And the point is, to not belabor a point, the point is that in the last hundred years, the amount of material that archaeologists have found and the early dates of those material have pressed that answer again and again closer and closer and closer to give us, even as scientists, greater, greater understanding and greater confidence that what we have in our scripture is actually the words that the apostles wrote. And so if you're going to have that sort of conversation with your friend, if they think, well, you know, in the fourth century, Constantine just wrote Jesus' divinity into the Bible, just go online. Show them, look, we have this, this writing from the first century that, 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 that has all these words. There, there's no evidence of anybody ever manipulating the text or adding Jesus' divinity to what the apostles had written. There's just no evidence of it. It doesn't exist. What we do have evidence is from the earliest records we have found, from the earliest manuscripts we have, reflect exactly and precisely what we hold in our hands. Now, there are some problem passages. We, we're honest about that. We, we, a couple weeks ago, we, we, I preached a whole message on thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And I said, that's probably not originally part of what Matthew wrote. It's probably not originally part of what Jesus taught. And we're honest about that. And you'll find for the disputed passages, which are few, you always find them marked in your Bible. We're not trying to deceive anyone or play any games when it comes to this stuff. But let's look at that third angle. If you're interested in textual criticism, Dan Wallace, who's one of the world's leading experts in the field, he actually offers a free online course in textual criticism. And he's a, he's a, he's a believer, he's an evangelical, he's, 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 he came to Ottawa through our Dig and Delve conference a few years ago. And uh, he's, he offers a free online course. So if you're a real geek about this stuff, I'll put that link on our Facebook page. But this interpretive angle, this is the approach I want to spend a little time looking at today, looking at the text themselves to see whether they even record Jesus claiming to be God. 
This is where maybe some of you have been frustrated reading your Bibles. Even as Christians, sometimes you read Jesus in the Gospels and you say, why wasn't he more clear? What? You're looking for statements where Jesus will just say, like, look, period, boom, I am God, worship me. And you say, well, I don't, where are those? And, and people pounce on that. Here's an example. I think we can get this video going. I'm not sure. But I want to show you the type of things that you will find online or your kids will find online. When you look up, and this is in a YouTube search of, uh, did Jesus claim to be God? This was one of the first hits that came up in my YouTube browser. Jesus Christ did not say, I am God, worship me. Now, if there's a Christian in this room that can tell me that Jesus said in his own words, not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, not John, not Paul, but Jesus said, I am God, worship me, then we will raise $5,000 for you tonight before you leave. Break your Bibles out. Call somebody up. Go make a phone call. Get the verse. You'll never find it. You'll find somebody else's word alluding to that. You'll find somebody else's reference appearing that. But Jesus never said to anybody, I am God, worship me. <coughs> Dear brothers and sisters and guests, go home tonight and palm through all the pages of your Bible, and I guarantee you will never find it once anywhere. So where did this come from? In three or four different occasions, it is mentioned in your scripture that I have read throughout my life before I became a Muslim that Jesus walked off and he fell down on his face and he worshiped God. Did it say that? Now, is that God bowing down to himself? Is that God calling on himself? No, Jesus said, I am Jesus who is sent. And the one who is sent is not like the one who sent me. Jesus said, I can of my own self do nothing. But whatsoever the one orders me, the one who sent me tells me to do, that is what I do. We cannot take Jesus out of the context of what Jesus said himself and make Jesus what we want him to be. That's what you're going to find. That's what your friends will share with you. That's the videos they'll share with you. That's the arguments that they'll make with you. How, how, I mean, just right now, think of what, how you would respond. And I really agree with the last thing he said. I, honestly, I say I really agree. Actually, I really agree with a lot that he said. You will not find a verse where Jesus says, I am God, worship me. I, I highly agree with the last thing he said, which is, we cannot take Jesus out of context of what Jesus said himself and make Jesus what we want him to be. I agree completely with that. We cannot take Jesus out of the context of what he said himself and make him into who we want him to be. That's what I mean. That's what I, why I'm calling this the interpretive angle. We want to we learn how to read Jesus and the scriptures well. So when we come to the biblical text, that's the question. 
Who does Jesus present himself to be? And maybe even a better question, what sort of being does Jesus claim to be? And this is important because I see so many articles and blogs and YouTube clips and debates which people like the gentleman in the video presuppose their own understanding of God upon the words of Jesus and then argue that Jesus does not claim to be God according to their understanding. Get that? They come to Scripture with a preconceived understanding of of their definition of what God is and who God is, and then if Jesus doesn't meet their pre-understanding of who God is, then they'll say, well, Jesus is not God according to their understanding. So, so for example, if God were this God of simple monotheism, for example, the, the, the portrayal that uh, this gentleman was, was giving, simple monotheism, that there is one God, there is no other, then we would expect Jesus to claim without qualification that he alone is God, that there's no one greater than himself, that there are no other beings who can claim divinity. And so they'll take Jesus' words, for example, in John 14, 28. John 14, 28, Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. And they'll say, by their definition of God being God alone, there is no other God. If Jesus says the Father is greater than I, they'll say there, by definition, Jesus is denying that he is not God. And so, yes, if the question is, did Jesus claim to be God according to that conception of God that they presupposed? I would agree wholeheartedly, no, he did not claim to be that God. And if you read the Gospels, expecting Jesus to claim that definition of God, you're going to walk away confused and say, huh, maybe Jesus was denying that he was God. But that is not how to interpret Scripture or any other text. When you're having a conversation with somebody, doesn't it frustrate you when they're using words that are different than the way you're using words, but you guys are not taking the time to understand how the other person is using the words, and you keep having the conversation, butting heads and talking past each other? It frustrates me when I'm in those conversations. And so when we're reading the text, when we're reading any book, or we're, we're having any conversation, part of the skill of interpretation is taking people for, at their own word for their own definitions and saying, okay, I want to understand you. And so to answer the interpretive approach, we must ask, what is Jesus claimed to have said? What, how is Jesus presenting himself? And then a third question, what response is recorded? And this is really important because it shows how the people both within the time of Jesus were responding to what he was saying and how the gospel writer is, is demonstrating this is what Jesus was saying and how the people responded to him. What response is recorded? And if you go through the scriptural text, and we'll look at a few of them this morning, and ask what sort of being does Jesus claim to be, you'll find that Jesus claimed a category for himself that's historically unique to the religious imagination of any ancient or modern worldview. Jesus claims to be divine with 
the Father. He claims to be divine and as divine as the Father. Yet he claims to be distinct from the Father and that this distinction does not negate or minimize his divinity. This is, it, let's look at some of these claims. Let's look at Jesus' claims in John's Gospel. Jesus' claims in John's Gospel, there's very little debate that in John's Gospel, John is writing to present Jesus as divine. As, as the divine son of God. There are many instances in John's Gospels I can pick. I can pick a lot, actually. For example, in John 6, 41 and 51, Jesus says, I am the bread that gives life and sustenance who has come down from heaven. Right? So, so, so Jesus is, these are, actually, John's Gospels built around seven I am statements. This is the first. Jesus claims, I am, I am the one who has come down from heaven to give you life. And the Jewish people who understood the blasphemy, said, huh. And they grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. In John chapter 8, Jesus on the last night of the Feast of Tabernacles, so, so he says in John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But the significant thing about this is where Jesus says this in John chapter 8. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles. John sets up the scene. There's a Feast of Tabernacles, one of the main feasts in Jerusalem. Every night what they would do is they would light up four pillars, gigantic pillars of fire around the city. And they would do that so that all, wherever you were in the city, you would see the light of these fires. And the light, the fires, the torches... The lamps were to remind the Israelites, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, so it would remind them of when they wandered in the wilderness and they were being guided by the glory of God that appeared to them as pillar of fire. And so the Jewish people in their mindset, they understood when they lit these flames, they were lighting these flames to remind themselves of the glory of God that led them in the wilderness, that burning pillar of fire that led them. And so Jesus stands up on the last night of this feast and says, I am the light of the world. They had just been for seven days celebrating Yahweh, the Lord is the light of the world. And now Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. And what do they say? What are the response to them? They call him a liar. They say you're bearing testimony about yourself. So the wor words you say are in invalid. And later in the chapter, they call him a, that he has a demon. Because nobody would make a claim like that, right? You know, we're worshiping, celebrating, oh, God, you are the light of the world. And then somebody goes, hey, 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 I am the light of the world. You say, man, you're crazy. Later in that same chapter, in, in, in uh, John 8, 58, Jesus is discussing, he's speaking about Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And he says to them, I tell you, before, they say, how can you know Abraham? Because Jesus said, Abraham longed that he could see my day. They said, how do you know what Abraham thought? How do you know what Abraham longed to see? And Jesus said, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And he could have just said, before Abraham, I was. And that would have been still crazy. It still would have been Jesus claiming, I existed before Abraham. But he doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Which nearly every who reads the Bible understands he's making a, a reference to the divine name of the Lord that the Jews understood as I am the one that is 
I am, when, when Moses asked God, what is your name that I should tell my, your people who they, how they should know you, the Lord says, tell them this, I am that I am, or I am the one who is. And so most scholars here see this is as close as Jesus gets to just explicitly and publicly just saying, look, I don't know how any clearer to say, I can say this, I am. But the, 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 the passage that makes my point best today about Jesus understanding he's claiming to share divinity with the Father, to be, to be equal to the Father in his divinity, but distinct from the Father, is in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, starting in verse 22, at that time the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, and the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Look at how carefully Jesus explains his identity here. The Father, he says, is greater than all. He makes a distinction between himself as the servant of God come in the flesh, Messiah, and the Heavenly Father to whom he prays. But yet, He shows his unity with the Father by claiming I and the Father are one, that Jesus is divine with the Father. And the passage could be ambiguous. What does Jesus mean by I and the Father are one? Except that, again, remember I told us to watch, sorry, how does John record uh, the response to the words of Jesus? Let's look at how Jesus' hearers respond in that context. He hears Jesus saying, I and the Father of one, and they they pick up stones. They say to him, we are going to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus, in his ministry, makes a distinction between himself and the Father, yet, and even maintains the greatness of his Father overall, but that distinction does not in any way negate or minimize his claim to divinity as evidenced by those who want to stone him. This is not the only time they pick up stones to stone Jesus. In the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Mark, people are hearing his claims. They're seeing he is making a distinction between him and the Father, yet he is claiming divinity upon himself. That's the record of Jesus' claims. In in summary, that's the record of Jesus' claims in John's Gospel, but almost everyone concedes that John's Gospel is written to present a divine Jesus. You know, people will say that as the last gospel, John develops and creates and manipulates a divine Jesus. This is something you don't see in the earlier gospels. Um, I bring this guy up a lot because he's popularly read. He's a scholar, and, and a lot of people, a lot of your friends, will actually read some of his books. He's a, I alluded to him last week, this guy named Bart Ehrman. He wrote a book basically called From Jesus to the Christ, and he wrote on his blog something of, 
how he had a mind change when it talked about how Jesus is presented in the other Gospels. He said, until a year ago, I would have said, and I frequently did say in the classroom, in public lectures, and in my writings, that Jesus is portrayed as God in the Gospel of John, but not, definitely not, in the other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yet in doing my research and thinking harder and harder about the issue, I finally yielded. These Gospels do indeed think of Jesus as divine, being made the very Son of God who can heal, cast out demons, raise the dead, pronounce divine forgiveness, receive worship together, suggests that even for these Gospels, Jesus was a divine being, not merely a human. And indeed, this is the picture we see in each of the Gospels. Again and again, the Gospels record that the Jewish people hearing Jesus' claims heard exactly what he was claiming, that he was God. In fact, he was God. I don't have time today to get into the actual trial at the end of his life. We might look at that a little bit more next week. But each of the Gospels maintain and record the charge the Jewish leaders held against Jesus was blasphemy, that he, as a man, was presenting himself as divine. Matthew gives us a good description of the central fact of Jesus' trial before the Jewish Supreme Court. I will read it. <laughs> In Matthew 26, 63, this is at the trial. Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes. And here's the important part. The high priest was required by the law, if he heard blasphemy uttered in his presence, to tear his robes. And so the high priest tears his robes and he says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You now all have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. It's a little confusing because when Jesus says, you have said so, some people will say, well, Jesus wasn't claiming to be God there. He's just saying, well, that's what you're reporting about me. But this is an idiom that we still even use today. If, if, uh, if a Judah comes up to me and he's like, man, I'm hungry. I'd love to have pizza for lunch. And I'm like, man, you said it. Right? I'm agreeing with him. I'm saying, yeah, man, you said the words. And I'm whole. So in the NIV, it actually translates the idiom for us. And in the NIV, it just says simply, Jesus answered, yes, I am. And it's actually a, it's an appropriate translation because that's the meaning of the idiom when Jesus said, you said it, Jesus is actually affirming, that's exactly right, you got it. And you know that that's the correct interpretation because they do get it, in fact, and they tear their clothes and say, we heard this blasphemy, you've all heard it, what should we do with them? And they all say, let's kill him. The best ironic commentary I ever heard on the claims of Jesus in the Gospels came from a man who attended our church for about a month. This man uh, presented himself as a follower of Jesus, uh, but he presented himself as a Jewish follower of Jesus, but he did not believe Jesus was divine. He believed Jesus was Messiah, but that Jesus never claimed to be divine. And he started mixing with some of our young adults. And, and I saw him one Sunday with a book. And I said, okay, well, I, I need to stop 
I need to go talk to this man. So I went to visit him at his house. I said, you know, you've been coming to our church for a couple weeks, but when you came, you, you actually told me you don't believe the normal Christian beliefs. Tell me about that. And so he told me, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Jewish. I, I follow Jesus, but I don't believe he's divine. I just believe he's the Messiah, but not divine. I don't think he ever claimed to be divine. So we sat for about two hours doing some Bible study together. And um, at the end, I was showing him these verses about like Jesus claiming divinity and the response of the people, tearing their robes, picking up stones to stone him. And the guy said the most amazing thing to me. He said, I, as a Jewish person, I cannot, I cannot believe that Jesus would have ever claimed to be divine. And I said, why? What's the heart of the issue for you? What is, you know, what is, what's holding you back? And he said, historically, Jesus could not have claimed to be God. And I said, why? He said, because if he claimed to be God, the Jewish people would have killed him. And I was like, yes? I, 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 I said, how do you read what happens at the end of the Gospels? I said, that's exactly what happens. They hear what he's saying. They hear his claims. His claims, listen. And young people, listen. The picture of Jesus that we present to our culture, who is the inclusive, loving Jesus, who said, and he does say this, and it inspires my heart that we have a Jesus who says, love, do good, and give expecting nothing in return. But you don't get killed for teaching love, do good, and give expecting nothing in return. You get killed when you, become, when you begin claiming preposterous things about yourself. When you, become, when you begin claiming preposterous things about Jesus, that's when they kill you. Not when you go and love your neighbors. Go, go, go and love your neighbors, but that's not when your neighbors will turn on you. They, they'll turn on you when we start saying, no, there's a reason why we can't just go along and rubber stamp everything our culture is doing. And they say, why? And it's because we worship Jesus as God who he claimed to be. And that's when the crosses come out. That's where we get this, so what? Go back to that, that quote I read at the beginning of the sermon. The answer to this question has enormous historical and theological implications, but I would say the answer to this question has enormous personal implications. If Jesus did not think he was God, then one of the central claims of Christianity, indeed arguably the central claim that the one true God became man and Jesus from Nazareth comes crashing to the ground. But if Jesus did speak and act as if he were the one true God, then we, we are forced to make a decision. Either he was a liar who knew he was just a man but spoke as if he were divine, or he was a lunatic who thought he was God but was grossly mistaken, or he was who he had claimed to be, the one true God come in person. Obviously, this author is most likely referencing the trilemma. This is called the trilemma. It was first proposed by a Scottish preacher, uh, John Duncan, and, who lived in the 1800s. It was actually promoted in China through Watchman Nee. He talked about it in his 1936 book, The Normal Christian Faith. But popularly in the Western world, the trilemma has come through you know, one of the, the great Christian apologists, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity when he writes about Jesus, I'm trying here to prevent anyone 
saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. People will say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And, and later in a radio interview following up on this, Lewis said we, about the response that people had to him, we may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, and adoration. There's no trace of people expressing mild approval. What does that mean for us? Church. Man, our church is filled with people. Our churches in the West are filled with people who give mild approval to Jesus. That was never his intent. You can run away. If you're here today and you haven't yet come to Christ, you might be hearing this right now. Jesus claims, makes a claim of who he is, that he is equal to the Father in divinity, yet distinct from the Father. He makes the, tri- the claim of a, of, a, of, a, of, of a Savior sent and as the triune God. He's very careful to express who he is in in the way that would lay the foundation for the church to express who he is through this idea and understanding of Trinity. And and in doing so, he makes claims about himself that that we either flee from him in terror or we fall on our feet in worship. I, I pray that church, we might be inspired to worship him. If Jesus is God, then the way he sets out in front of us, the way to live, is God's way for our life. When he says the kingdom of God is now among you, so therefore repent, he has the authority to to require of us that we would repent and turn to him. When he stands up in front of us, he says, I am the bread of life, come down from heaven to offer eternal life. He alone has the authority to offer that. When he says, many will come to me on that last day and I will sit on the throne and I will judge them according to their works, he alone has the authority as the God-man to set himself up as judge. When he when he gives of himself, when he gives of himself on the cross, dying for our sins in our place, it is as a perfect and righteous and holy substitute because only the, a God could pay the debt against God for our sin. That is what he has done. 
for us. So if you're not here today, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, I mean, I would implore you through this whole series, take these things and study them out and wrestle with them. I pray that this Easter you will come and and, and bow your knee before our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here, one thing challenge I would leave with you is, is grow in your handling of Scripture. Grow in how you handle and interpret the Word. And grow in your theology. Because So, so a friend of mine asked me yesterday, he asked me, and he's here, so I won't name him, but he, he asked me yesterday, he said, how do you deal with the hard issues of your faith and how do you deal with the questioning? And I said, as I've spoken to a couple of you over the last couple of months, I don't know what it was about when I first became a Christian. I was 16 years old, but I was in a family that was so skeptical, so challenging to my faith, that when I became a Christian, I, first, I just started reading these books. And I happened to read, in my, in my kind of formative years of being a Christian, I happened to read authors who asked a lot of the hard questions. And what that did to me was, I, I, I've never got this idea that maybe some of you got when you grew up in the church. Some, or, or, or when you came to faith. Some of us get this idea that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't ever ask hard questions. I don't know where that idea comes from. Hard questions are being asked over and over and over and over and over again in the Scripture. I once did a study in college about every time in the Bible where God was questioned or challenged. I had pages and pages of pages of people in the Scripture saying, what are you doing, God? And so some of those formative mentors and authors I read all kind of said, you know, ask the hard questions. And so what I shared with this person is that that's kind of was formative for my faith. But I love, I love it when I get to scriptures that I hate. And what I mean by that is I love it when I get to scripture and I'm like, what are you doing here, God? I don't get it. Maybe I don't even like what you're doing here. I love those passages. I love the wrestling with God that happens in account of that. I, I love it when, I, when I'm going, okay, God, I don't get you here. I'm, I'm still going to submit my life to you, God, here, but I don't get what you're doing here. And I, I heard one pastor or an apologist a couple of years ago, he said, you as a Christian, you should have no hard passages. There should be no passages of Scripture that you're, you're afraid to look into and wrestle with and grow in. And sometimes it's those passages, sometimes it's those parts of the Bible that really build up your faith. Right? When you, when you work through the hard passages, you know, then it's easier to accept the easy ones. And so that's what I would challenge you. So many of these questions have faded away from me. When I was in my mid-20s, yeah, they all were, they, it seemed like a mountain. And as I've grown in my understanding of theology, as I've grown in my understanding of how to handle the Word of God, as I've seen how Scripture interprets Scriptures, more and more of these intellectual questions melt away. And I've grown in my awe of God who has revealed himself to us long ago through the prophets in many different ways and ultimately in the person of his son who he's sent among us to proclaim that he is the way, the truth, the life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, increase our awe of you and increase our devotion to your Son. Increase our confidence of 
upon your word and increase our, our just love of you, Lord. Father, some of us might be struggling intellectually. I pray, Lord, that they might rest their thoughts on the rock that you've revealed in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ. He said, uh, my, my, my teachings are like a rock you build your life on. When the wind comes, stability will remain. And Lord, some of us struggle not intellectually, but we struggle emotionally. We, we understand that you are God, but in our mind we understand all these things, but we struggle in our heart to truly embrace you. I pray, God, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts so we might see your glory, and that we might just stand in awe of you and of your Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that you build up our faith as a church. I pray that, that for some who are here, you, that, that they might be inspired to, 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 to go deeper in their study, to go deeper in their, in their how to understand how to handle the word of God so that when their friends and neighbors and classmates ask them the reason for the hope that they have, they're able to give a, a reasonable answer. And so we pray these things, God, because we are living in a world more and more that man can't even define truth at all anymore, that, that doubts every fact, even the ones that are right in front of our face. And so, God, I pray that we, you help us to go out and live this week for, as, as those of people who, whose feet are set firmly upon your rock. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to move into a time of response, a time of praise, to stand up and to sing praises to our God. And so sing out. We, we, we don't have our young adults with us. They're singing uh, somewhere else. So we need actually everybody else to sing a little bit louder today, okay? Because 